Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with U.S. Senator John Thune about his career in public service and experience in Republican Senate leadership. Senator Thune, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, uh, great. Great to be uh, on the campus, University of South Dakota, and back in Vermilion and on a uh, balmy, warm 15-degree day. <laughs> For sure. Well, we're excited to talk to you today about you know your experience out in Washington, D.C., but we also want to just get to know you and learn a little bit more about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town on Interstate 90 in western South Dakota called Murdo. Uh, it's probably it's about 200 miles east of Sioux Falls and a 135 miles or so, um, I should say west of Sioux Falls and about 135 miles east of Rapid City. So it's really kind of right in the middle of the state. Small town, small school, now probably about 500 people in town, a little bigger than that when I was coming through. But I got a chance when I was growing up to do a lot of things. You know, you go to a small school. I tell people, you don't, you don't have to be good. You just have to be there. So, you, you know, you play all the sports. I uh, played in the band, sang in the swing choir, uh, tried oratory one year, um, so you just get a chance to, to do and, and try a lot of things, and I, I feel very blessed by that experience. I had great teachers, and uh, it was good preparation. You know, what influenced you then to pursue a career in public service? Uh, you know, it's it kind of a, it's probably a longer story than you want, but I, I actually had a chance encounter as a freshman in high school with a congressman, a member of Congress from South Dakota at the time, who represented at that time, South Dakota had two congressional districts, and he represented the Western District. And he was a, kind of a sports fan. I uh, came to a ball game. Uh, I met him uh, the next day. We, it was a three-day tournament, and he came back, and I ran into him, and, you know, he introduced himself. And so I kind of started following his career. And um, after I got out of grad school here, shortly after, um, he had gotten elected by that time to the Senate, and he offered me a job uh, in Washington, D.C. And so... I went out there for uh, about four and a half years. My wife and I had just gotten married, and so um, that's kind of how I got interested in it. Really wouldn't have been. I mean, growing up in Murdo, it wasn't something, my family wasn't into politics. It wasn't something we talked about, really. You know, my, my parents were, they were, um, you know, they did their their conscientious duty and voted and, and that sort of thing, but it's not, a, not something that was um, part of our experience growing up. That was Jim Abner, correct? Correct, yeah, Jim Abner. Do you have any, I guess, you know, just stories working with him that you'd want to share? Well, I mean, he was as good as they come. Um, Jim Abner really, you know, he was kind of what you see is what you get. Um, He was a small-town guy like me, and uh, I I really um, valued and appreciated the um, perspective that he brought to the job, the way he went about it, the character he displayed on a daily basis. And I remember when I first went to work in Washington, I met a guy, a staffer for another senator who served on the Appropriations Committee with Senator Abner. And he said, you know, who do you work for? And I said, well, I'm I'm just new. I started with Jim Abner. And this guy goes, your boss has to be the nicest man on Capitol Hill. And um, he had that reputation. He was genuinely nice and kind to everybody, no matter their station in life. Uh, very humble, and um, and just, I think, to me, uh, gave me a perspective about the right way to go about doing this, and I learned a lot from him. I'm grateful for that and hope that, uh, you know, in some ways maybe to live up to his, um, you know, his legacy. You know, we've got you running around campus here quite a bit today. I know you're going to visit a camp uh, or a class after um, this interview, but um, 
you know, you earned a master's degree from USD. Do you have any memories just from that time of your life? Well, I remember how hot it was in the summer, and we didn't have air conditioning in the B school <laughs> at the time, so the classroom was really hot. But, um, no, I have great memories. Um, you know, I had great instructors down here, some of whom are still around. We just lost one. Jack Powell is my quantitative methods uh, professor, and um, he was the mayor of, uh, of Vermilion and uh, just uh, passed away here in the last several months. Great guy. Stayed in touch with him through the years. I had Denny Johnson for econ, R.L. Johnson for finance, uh, David Moen. Phil Fisher was the dean of the school at the time. Um, Jimmy Peterson for business law, uh, and all colorful and entertaining guys. And I really appreciated and enjoyed the experience. I think it uh, uh, prepared me for what would come next in life. I kind of anticipated at the time when I was going through the program here that I would work in financial services or some business-related field. And, and like I said, it was sort of a chance thing that got me started on this, on this path. But I really appreciate and value the um, experience of looking at the world and looking at issues and problems uh, through the, the prism of uh, kind of that MBA background. And, 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 and that analytical skill set is something that I try and bring to the job. And I think it's helped me, uh, particularly on legislative issues that pertain to the economy, uh, tax policy, trade policy. Um, so you, you try and take the things that you've learned in the composite of your life and, and make it applicable to uh, where you are now. And I certainly am blessed and feel grateful for the experience and the background that I gained here. You know, we've been blessed, I guess, on this podcast to have a number of elected officials who have come on. And one question I always like to ask is just about campaigns. Like, you know, do you enjoy campaigning? Do you have any memorable experiences or stories from a particular campaign? Um, you obviously have been involved in, I think, two of the most like famous U.S. Senate campaigns, at least in South Dakota history, if not national history. Do you have any, just, you know, a, as you kind of reflect, I know that was like 15, 20 years ago, but do you have any memories that you'd care to share about that time period or what you learned um, going through some of those campaigns? You know, I'm sure it gave me a minute to think about it. I come up with a lot of stories, but, um, you know, I would say, and, and I used to, probably most years, not every year, but would come down for uh, Dakota Days and do the parade. And, you know, and you, you try when you're running in a state like South Dakota, people still really value retail politics. You know, sometimes nowadays campaigns tend to be driven more by media, either, you know, broadcast media, electronic media or social media. Um, South Dakota has always been a state where people want to touch you, feel you, look you in the eye. And so there was a ton of campaigning at uh, parades fairs, you know, rodeos, um, and homecomings and things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, it's the, I would say that's probably to me, the most enjoyable part of a campaign is just the interaction you get with people. Now that doesn't mean people always agree with you or always like you. And, um, we're in a period right now where you can't make anybody happy. But I would say that, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but you do, there are the, the rewarding parts, and then there's also the parts that where um, people can be sometimes not so nice to you uh, on the campaign trail. Um, but uh, give me a minute here, and I'll think of something. You know, you, obviously, like I said, you, you've had a distinguished career in public service. You're now the second-ranking member of the Republican caucus, um, known as the whip this position. What, what does the whip actually do in a party political caucus? In the Senate, it's really challenging because every senator, literally under the rules of the Senate, um, can shut the place down. I mean, and Senate, senators are empowered individually, and um, 
you know, most senators kind of, you know, <laughs> view themselves in an ent- as an entity unto themselves. And um, so what you have to try and do is it's you're trying to get everybody to function as a team. And I kind of draw on skills that I've learned in other areas of life to, to do that. But you're trying to move the agenda. And if you're in the majority, obviously, and if you have a, your president of your party is in office, then you're trying to push that agenda through. In this case, in the last couple of years when we were in the majority, it was judges. Um, uh, some of the legislative priorities of the administration, some that we were trying to get done, tax reform, uh, some other uh, issues like that. And it's trying to cobble together, um, you know, that 50 votes plus one, or if you need 60, which in the Senate, because of our rules and procedures you know, on most legislation, requires a supermajority or 60 votes, meaning that you also have to reach out to people on the other side of the aisle. And so you have to be a good listener, um, and, uh, and you have to be uh, good at sort of uh, building, uh, a, you know, you have to be a good team player. Um, and trying to uh, just sort of, some days people described it as herding cats, but it really is um, trying to focus people on a common objective and knowing that everybody's coming from slightly different perspectives and wants to have their input uh, and try and, as best you can, synthesize that and, and unify your team so that you can get the result that you want. It's a, it's a, it's a, lot, of, um, it's a lot of teamwork. Do you think that's more difficult to do now than maybe when you first entered the Senate? I think it's I think it's harder because there are more agendas and there are more influences that that create those agendas. So social media platforms now people, a lot of times some I shouldn't say a lot of times, but some are more interested just in uh, you know kind of becoming famous, becoming a celebrity and and developing a following. Some, you know, obviously people who come to the Senate have interest in running for national office. They have aspirations that way. And social media has given people an opportunity to develop a platform. So you can become an influencer uh, just by developing a big following. And so, you know, you have a lot of people who um, come to uh, Congress and some have specific objectives, things they want to get done legislatively, uh, committees they want to get involved with, work, with uh, work they want to do. And, um, and then you have people who are uh, diff- appealing to different constituencies. And the one thing I think has really changed is social media. And I would say the, um, a lot of people now kind of their, I would say their information ecosystem is kind of closed. They, a lot of people will get uh, the information from, you know, one source. And, and if you're on a tech platform these tech companies they know how the they get the algorithms going and they start reinforcing and so you're there's less i would say willingness to accept new information or the views about that somebody else might have i think i I guess what i'm trying to tell you is that yes it's harder because people have kind of gotten into you know they they're people describe it as tribalism but everybody kind of goes to their corner and it's hard to find the common ground it's hard to find the middle and most solutions historically in the Senate have found, been found in the middle. So as all these influences and outside groups and you know, political campaign money now has changed that too and the threat of primaries on both sides, Republican and Democrat, it kind of pushes people to the, to the edges, to the fringes, instead of, instead of pulling them to the middle. And so if you're somebody who likes to get things done, yeah, it's a complicating factor. And um, so I try as best I can to keep focused on a goal trying to get a result, trying to get an outcome, 
um, but that becomes increasingly difficult in an, in a, an increasingly polarized um, Senate because we've got, I, th I would say, an increasingly polarized country. A lot of people say that politics is you know, upstream from culture. I think it's downstream from culture. I think what happens politically sort of mirrors or reflects what's happening in the country. And I think the country's been very divided and very polarized, and I think our politics reflects that. You know, Senator, you brought up a topic I wanted to discuss. You're part of, and you serve on a number of um, important Senate committees, including the Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee, the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, and the Finance Committee. And you are the ranking member of the Commerce Committee's subcommittee on communications, technology, innovation, and the internet. This is all to lead into talking about social media. You got to have a long name in Washington, or it doesn't mean much. Right? Yeah, and I mean, we 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 just talked about that. I mean, in a, this era of like you know lack of bipartisan cooperation, there seems to be like bipartisan animosity towards social media companies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you anticipate there being legislative action? geared towards social media companies? Do you think that social media companies need greater regulation? I think they need, I think we need to reform the, the statute, the law that governs how they operate. And it goes back to 1996. It's called Section 230. It was Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act and essentially gave them immunity, uh, a liability shield, if you will. Um, and, and frankly, to be fair, I mean, it did help spawn the, the explosion we've seen in the internet and all the the different applications and platforms that have evolved from that a, a lot of that had to do with sort of the the freedom to innovate that a lot of these companies had well now you've got um, you know people on the right and the left who want to completely get rid of get rid of section 230 want to get rid of the liability shield for different reasons but I think frankly the answer is to to, to reform it um, and I've got a bill to do that, and I hope we can get some action on it. It's a bipartisan bill, and it basically creates more transparency uh, so that these companies have to be more transparent about how they're, what they do, how are they filtering content. If they are, um, you know, for example, if they're moderating content, they need to let you know that. And, and they let, need to let you know how they're doing it on the platforms that you're on. And then secondly, it also gives people recourse. I think they need to have some way of holding these companies accountable. And today that doesn't really exist because they use that liability shield essentially um, in all circumstances, even if they are sort of stepping on the scales and, and moderating the content that goes over their platforms. You know, is there a particular piece of legislation that you've worked on in your career that you are most proud of, either seeing it pass or just the, the process and being involved with it? Well, there. Are, I mean, it's it's you go back a long ways, but there are a number of things. You know, in the farm uh, agricultural world, I've been on the ag committee for almost my whole time in Congress, both House and Senate, and so I've done now. I think we've done four farm bills. We do one about every five years or so, and um, you know, so a lot of the agricultural policy that in South Dakota is, I think, hopefully meaningful to our farmers and ranchers. I've had a hand in developing over the years, and so I, you know, that's our number one industry, so I'm, I'm proud of the work we've done there. And in the commerce science and transportation space, and I did chair that committee for four years, um, I had to give it up to become the whip. You, our rules don't allow us to, to have both a chairman of a major committee and top two leadership positions, so um, I'm still the senior uh, Republican on that committee, and so I'm very interested. But we did a lot of stuff in the tech space. Uh, we passed a bill a few years ago called Mobile Now, which uh, expanded the amount of spectrum that's available for wireless use. 
And, um, you know, to accommodate 5G, you've got to have that. You've got to have spectrum and you've got to have infrastructure. And that bill did some of both. I mean, it helped to in provide incentives for companies to build out the infrastructure that could carry uh, the networks, uh, accommodate the networks that would come, and also creates additional spectrum, which you have to have. And I think as we have become increasingly dependent upon our wireless devices, uh, that's going to be uh, really critical in the future. Um, we did uh, get a bill passed last year, and it was a Democrat, Ed Markey, one of the most liberal senators from Massachusetts and I, uh, had a bill to ban robocalls, you know, these no annoying robocalls that you get. And uh, I hope they've, they've been cut down. For a while there, they were really out of hand, and we got a, a bill passed into law last year that uh, uh, gave the FCC the authority and the direction to dramatically uh, decrease the amount of annoying nuisance calls people were getting and that and that had a practical you know a practical effect in people's lives so you try and you know look for things that you can do that actually make a difference and uh, I think we've done a number of things on the economy and the finance committee I was very involved in in writing the 2017 tax law and I think that's led to uh, a lot of growth and a lot of jobs up until the pandemic which obviously has set us back but um, so I, I like to do things that hopefully are improve the quality of life the standard of living for uh, people in South Dakota, and uh, it's uh, a lot of that's infrastructure, broadband, roads and bridges, uh, farm policy, tech policy, kind of in that space. What do you anticipate working on now in the next Congress? I think there's uh, there are several things that um, that we need to get done. Right now, we're we're dealing with mostly pandemic relief, and so that'll occupy us for a while. But there will be a bill coming after that, which will be. Most of what we've done so far are what I would call rescue bills, but now we're looking at kind of recovery. Um, and there will be, a, I think, a follow-on infrastructure bill, um, what it looks like to be determined, but for sure it'll have a, a number of things that will impact South Dakota, uh, not just in terms of roads and bridges, but probably broadband and some other types of infrastructure. But I think there are a couple of things in the tech space. I mentioned the Section 230 reform. I would like to see that get done. Um, we've been working for years. I have on privacy legislation, another issue that um, I think is important um, for online users. And um, we need you know, rules, new rules sort of uh, privacy. Uh, I'm real involved on an issue with uh, um, basically self-driving cars and uh, so and that's something a technology that's coming and we've been working on trying to develop a kind of the parameters the guardrails for that so that that technology can proceed in a safe way but um, I think you're going to see uh, I, I think you're going to see that technology explode and it'll be very transformative in the years ahead. Now you brought up this concept just now of the idea of like rescue bills and it made me think for a second because I, I thought back to 2008, 2009, 2010 and the idea that we were having like rescue bills back then. And I, I guess in my head, I go, well, what does, like we've, we've just had, I feel like a prolonged period of politics where it seems like we're always doing rescue bills. And I don't even necessarily know if I know what normal politics looks like, if that makes sense. And right. kind of makes me think of like when the pandemic first kind of overtook the United States, people would talk about like the new normal. And I think they would, they were referencing washing hands and wearing masks and stuff like that. Is there now like a new normal with politics? Where are we at? Mm -hmm. um, good question. I think I don't think we really know the answer to that yet until we sort of come out of this. I think right now, and for the for the last twelve months, you know, for sure, almost everything we've done has had some component of pandemic relief. And um, you know, there were there were a number of things that passed toward the end of the year which 
you know, I had like nine bills that made it into this uh, year-end bill, some of which related to agriculture. And, um, but we, a, normal, a normalcy, I think, is something that all of us would like to see come back. And I think that's when you get past where every bill is dealing with production of vaccine, distribution of vaccine, you know, assistance for uh, medical providers, PPE, testing, um, where we're not, you know, doing extensions of unemployment insurance because people have been able to get back to work, uh, where we're not having to come up with, you know, new uh, programs to benefit small businesses because they are actually vibrant again. And so I hope that's not too far away. Uh, my sense is we're probably still six months or a year from where we're talking about what we would think of as more normal issues. And, and maybe that reset won't be back to where we were. Maybe that's a, a reset that is um, reflective of kind of the new reality we live in. And, I, and that would be shaped by what happened with the pandemic, the changes that have happened in our economy as a result of that. I mean, there's a lot more carry-out service. There's a lot more, um, if you look at um, the way people are consuming information and recreation, Netflix and <laughs> you know Amazon Prime Video and Apple Plus. I mean, people are watching how they how so entertainment's changed. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, there's just going to be so many changes. People are working from home now, and people have gotten accustomed to doing t Zoom type events as opposed to going to the office. I think there's going to be a lot of repercussions in the economy. Um, perhaps that are permanent as a result of, of the pandemic. So what the new normal looks like, I think, remains to be seen. You know, we talked a while ago about uh, kind of what the, the whip did. I, how will your role, I guess, shift in the new Senate? Well, we're in the minority now, although it's a very, very close. It's 50-50, but um, we don't control the agenda in the Senate anymore. Uh, the Democrats do, so it does change. And uh, someone has, you know, said it's a lot easier to throw grenades than it is to catch them. <laughs> and when you're in the majority, you're catching a lot of grenades, and you're responsible for getting the votes. I mean, I have, I had, was responsible on close votes to deliver, the, you know, whatever we needed to pass a bill. So you had to find 51 if it was a, you know, something that allowed for 51, like a judicial nomination, or if it was major legislation, you had to get to 60. And in the minority. Um, you tend to be, you know, you're, you're now the loyal opposition. You don't have to deliver the votes. Um, you are trying as much as you can to shape legislation by, you know, getting the, um, you know, maybe trying to get the majority to where they need you. And I'm hoping that'll be the case. There are some Democrats who are going to be uncomfortable, I think, with some of the things that their leadership is trying to do. I mean, they're going to be pulled hard left, I think, by the progressives and their caucus, and frankly, the progressives around the country, which I think have the, that's where the energy is, that's where the, the um, intensity is right now in politics on the left, and so sort of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party is going to be pulling hard against the, the middle, and, um, and hopefully that, you know, creates an opportunity for us to work with some of the Democrats in the middle and, and be able to find some common ground. We're trying to do that on this uh, upcoming virus bill, although so far um, both the, uh, the new administration and the new leadership in the Senate hasn't been very interested in what we have to <laughs> contribute. Hopefully that'll change. But it's just a different role. Um, you still have to keep your team together. You still want to do that on big votes, but you're not responsible for 
for winning. You know, I mean, you don't have to you don't have to deliver unless you're trying to pick off a couple of Democrats and defeat something. But it's a very different calculation. It's a very different power dynamic, and it changes uh, in a fairly significant way. You know, the role of the of the whip. That's interesting. I mean, you talk about the, I guess, difficulties with kind of the extremes of the parties and how that influences like leadership. Um, I mean, how did that how did that affect your tenure um, when you were in leadership with the Senate Republicans? I mean, did you feel the extremes really hampered your ability to get things done? I think that the the um, it's been hard. Yeah, in the, in, the, in this environment in the last few years where uh, it, it has become very polarized and very divided um, to, to put together, a, you know, a coalition. I'll give you an example. So last August, we were working on the Democrats had this $2.4 trillion coronavirus relief bill. Well, that was too much for our guys. So we were trying to put together a, a, an alternative that would represent all of the Republican caucus and then try to pick off some Democrats to get to 60. And so I was kind of responsible for <laughs> pulling that together. And I had to work with, on the right, with, you know, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, the, you know, Josh Hawley, the, the sort of conservatives on our side, and, and then the more moderates like, you know, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And every time you'd fix something over here, something else would pop up over here. And, you know, it took us a long time. It took us weeks. But eventually we got there, and we got something that we could get. We got 52 out of 53 Republicans to vote for. Um, we didn't get Rand Paul. But, um, you know, it's, a, it's just a challenge on any given day, given where the country is, to get Democrats and Republicans to work together, but it's sometimes can be challenging too just to get Republicans on the same page because you get a lot of people coming at it from different perspectives. And, and frankly, honestly, I talked about being a good listener. That's a big part of the job. It, a lot of it too is relationships. I mean, you've got to have relationships and develop those relationships with the members of your con conference no matter where on the political spectrum they fall so that when you, you can at least talk to them and say, okay, what would you, what do you need to um, on, on this particular piece of legislation to get to yes, and and then you got to go over here on the other side of your, it's uh, it's a broad spectrum and um, it's and you know every any given issue any given day it's challenging. Now I know they always accuse the Democrats of being the big tent party, but I do think that it, it's interesting. There's a diversity of viewpoints within the Republican Party that maybe were not always as apparent. Maybe maybe they always existed, but they just weren't sort of on the forefront. Do, do you feel like the Republican Party's identity has shifted at all? I mean, does does it mean the same thing to you today as it did 25 years ago when you were just thinking about, you know, running for office? It it it's it's the same for me, but I do think it shifted. Uh, I think the country is in a different place, and um, what they consider to be a a conservative or Republican has has changed, and, and and somewhat frankly, just because of the personalities in politics. I mean, there are a lot of people today, Republicans, who, um, you know, whose allegiance really was kind of to President Trump, and they were new voters. They were, you know, what may, what people would call probably low propensity voters, uh, conservatives who came out because they uh, supported supported the president. Um, to me. Your political party <clears throat> needs to be anchored in something more than just the changing personalities, because that you know they come and they go. And for me, you know, when I got into politics, the first election I voted in in 1980, um, when I was of age, was uh, that presidential election between uh, Reagan and Carter. 
And I was attracted to Car or to Reagan because, and I grew up in, like I said, a family that wasn't real political, and Jim Abner, who was on the ballot that year too, um, because of the the optimism, the hope. I loved Reagan's approach to things. He was he was optimistic about the country, and I've always felt that politics ought to be about, uh, you know, appealing to people's hopes and not preying on their fears. And I I like politics that that. Um, you know, uplifts people. And I know that's not always possible because, like I said, there are some deep differences in the country. But to me, being a Republican is a, is a belief in limited government. It's a belief in fiscal responsibility. It's a belief in economic freedom, free enterprise. It's a belief in that you achieve peace through strength. Uh, it, we're the pro-life party. Um, you know, those are the kind of the core, what I would call, principles that sort of anchor um, what it means to be a Republican for me. And, and so I try to bring those ideas to bear uh, and translate them into whatever issue it is we're dealing with. And so, you know, I'm, I'm usually looking for what is the right of center conservative solution to this particular problem? How do we incentivize the right thing rather than mandate it? You know, instead of using government as the, as the, as the tool, as the lever, how do we use the, you know, people and the creativity and the, and the, and the market to come up with solutions? I guess what role then do you think President Trump will play in the future of the Republican Party as it goes forward, especially as you all try to take back the majority? Well, he's got a he's got a big uh, base out there, a big group of um, followers, as who I said are very passionate, and in many cases uh, passionate about him personally. Um, but I think that if there are candidates that will emerge in the future who can speak to the issues that he hit upon, and I think he, he resonated with a lot of people because there were a lot of folks out there who felt like politicians in Washington weren't listening to him. Uh, they thought it was the establishment. They wanted somebody to go in and disrupt it, and you know he was clearly a disruptive force. But he, 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 uh, he connected on a few issues that I think are going to have to be uh, a part of our, if you look at our governing coalition, if we want to be a majority, a governing coalition in the future, we're going to have to speak to <clears throat> one is strong borders. I mean, he was a he would you know the issue on the border is something that he was very passionate about, and I think it resonated with a lot of people. Two is you know being tough on China, and um, I, you know he talked a lot how China's been taking advantage of us, and people really resonated with that. Um, I think it was um, the idea of having American you know first when it comes to energy production, for example, and not being dependent upon other countries around the world. Those are those are sort of issues that are anchored to, uh, I think, a value set that a lot of people out there feel pretty passionate about. And so if our party can um, figure out how to speak to those issues, kind of bring them together, integrate them with the, uh, the more traditional, maybe uh, Republican philosophy, uh, I think there's a real opportunity. But, you know, that uh, remains to be seen whether we can do it or not. We've got to, we've got to win people in the suburbs back. Those are the groups that we've lost. I think one of the issues that really speaks to them right now and uh, is getting kids back to school. It's not so too true here in South Dakota, but in other parts of the country, if you're a suburban voter and, um, you know, the administration's made promises about getting schools safely opened, uh, you know, if they can't, um, can't deliver on that, I think that's a, that's a hot issue because I think that speaks to a lot of suburban voters. You know, this year has been hard. I think by any measure any, anyone would say that. I mean, 
what has been like the hardest moment for you? Is there a particular defining moment that you think back on that you'll view as like a takeaway from this time period in history? Is it more fluid? What will your your takeaway be from maybe 2020? Um, I just, I would say just the, it's probably, my experience has been very probably similar to a lot of people across South Dakota and across the country. And you know, it's hard. There's a there's an anxiety. There's a stress when you got this sort of silent killer out there. Everybody's worried about getting it or worried about transmitting it. Um, it's trying to do, you know, the, the pressure of trying to come up with the right sort of policy solutions that are responsible and targeted and that they're, you know, that you're using taxpayer dollars wisely and well in, in, in terms of crafting solutions. Um, but just kind of the, the isolation, the loneliness of not being able to do normal things. And that's been hard for me, like it is for a lot of people. I mean, you kind of get yourself in a low spot. Um, you spend too much time on social media. You know, in fact, I take my, uh, I've, I've tried to do a lot less with this. And, um, you know, if you're getting up in the morning and you're on this and you're going to bed at night and the last thing you're looking at is this thing, you can get you in kind of a, you know, you just got to, in some ways, um, focus on things that are more positive and, um, and, and really not dwell on the negative because it, it kind of gets you into this vortex and there's sort of this downward spiral. And I think a lot of people are dealing with, you know, mental health issues, emotional issues, certainly uh, physical impacts from all this, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been a tough, it's been a tough stretch. Well, and you talked about that. You, you sort of, I guess brought up this idea that politics is more of a is more downstream or yeah is more downstream than I guess the rest of society. Well, how does politics I guess then swim upstream, right? How can politics sort of lead us out of this current you know turmoil that we're in? Both sometimes it feels like politically, economically, socially, with just with everything that's going on. I think again you have to you have to appeal to people's hopes. You know. Americans are want to be an optimistic people. I think that's something that differentiates us from other places around the world. I mean, we people in South Dakota are tough. They were pioneers. You know, they put up with uh, this weather, <laughs> obviously among other other things and challenges and adversity that they faced uh, out here. But you know, you have to you have to be you have to maintain that optimism and and um, have a uh, a sense about the future that keeps you moving forward and. Um, and so I think, you know, more than anything else to me, you know, this, if, if any of the lessons that we learn from all this, it's, uh, it's try and extend grace, not only to yourself, but to other people, um, when you're going through a tough time and, um, you know, as best you can, uh, look for ways to, to serve other people, because I think the more people think about themselves, the more that anxiety and that stress kind of eats at you. And if you're actually looking at what you can do to improve the world around you, what you can do to serve somebody else, it, it strikes me at least that it takes the attention off of you and, um, and it, it just sort of liberating in a way. And I, I think as we think about this period, hopefully um, we'll learn some of those lessons and be able to apply them in the future. I've just got one more question. I know we're running out of time here, but I'll ask you to put your philosophy hat on for just a moment here. You've had a obviously super interesting life. You've been involved in historic campaigns. Um, obviously, you've been in sort of those rooms, I think, when people talk about, you know, if these walls could talk. Well, you were in the, the room. If, if you could talk, right, um, what would you say? At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? <laughs> well, um, 
I know that uh, I'm a big believer and I'm a person of faith. Um, I believe God is real. I believe he has a plan. And, uh, and I believe that, uh, you know, we are here, hopefully, to be used by him to make a difference. Um, I'm, you know, I'm certain that the American way of doing things with our priceless, matchless Constitution and the, the legacy and the heritage we have is the best solution um, when it comes to governing my, mankind and to getting people to aspire to be the best that they can possibly be. And so I think we should never forget that, um, continue to draw on that, know that as problems come up, there are going to be vigorous debates about how to solve them, but that there is an anchor and a foundation that is enduring, uh, that is very different from any form of government in the world, either before or since. And uh, we should always greatly value that. Senator Thune, thank you so much for uh, joining us today for the conversation. Thank you for visiting campus, and thank you for all the work that you do for the state and just representing South Dakota. Really thank, appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you, and good luck with that, finishing up that third year. <laughs> yeah, for and sure. Go Yotes, too. Go Yotes.